but the the no bra thing is staying. Yeah. Oh, okay, just titties all day. Yeah. Titties all the way. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Anslicht. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, super excited because uh, although she is nervous and she, uh, I think, is uh, a bit scared about what's about to happen, I believe that our next guest, our guest here today, is a natural. Our guest is none other than Jessica Flake, who is an assistant professor at uh, McGill University, uh, in the Department of Psychology in the quantitative methods and modeling area. Her research focus, focuses on applications and evaluations of latent variable and random effects models for educational and social psychological research. It sounds like I just read that, doesn't it? It does. It's amazing how you just had that memorized. <laughs> it is. Um, just a tiny bit more background. So um, Jess got her, her Bachelor's of Science uh, in 2009 from Northern Kentucky University uh, in psychology. She got an MA in 2012 from James Madison University and then a PhD uh, in 2015 from the University of Connecticut. And for the past few years before her uh, current position at McGill, she was a postdoc at York University and the University of Virginia. So Jess, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You already outed me as nervous. So we're enemies now. Enemies? Yeah, it's, it's on. It's on. All right. Well, I look forward to aspiring verbally. I think uh, you'll more than uh, be our match, I think. What do you think, you all? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not on the enemies list. It's just you, man. <laughs> just me. You were giving me shit earlier about my beer pour. So she's like, just kicks her ass. I, I think I'm just going to watch and enjoy. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I, you know, I, I, so I'm Jess, I think I met you three or four years ago. I believe fittingly we met at a bar. Uh, I mean, not randomly. You were, I think we were, we, we had some friends in common. Um, the, and, rum, the rum place, Rum Corner. Exactly. Rum Corner on Dundas Street, which is a Haitian bar. And I believe I got uh, more drunk than I typically get after one of these shows. Um, and I remember uh, being like, who is that person? She is so outspoken and opinionated and smart. Why have I only just met her now? I just showed up in Toronto. You basically met me right away. Yeah, that's right. So we're super excited to have you. We're going to talk about a bunch of things. I think we're going to talk about, uh, well, one of your specialties, a measurement. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, I think you got into some hot water on Twitter about defending the GRE. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. And I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, you as a person, um, being a first-generation uh, uh, college student, and talk about that experience. Do we want to talk uh, about what we're drinking? Definitely, because I am very, very thirsty. And Jess, uh, who uh, is, as I mentioned, is a professor at McGill University in Montreal in Quebec. So that's my, my home province. She brought delicious, amazing uh, Quebec beer, which is, you know, so much better than the beer we get here in Ontario. Um, so uh, the first beer we're drinking is from uh, Brasserie Harikana. So it's a, it's a microbrew uh, in Montreal, in, in central Montreal. Uh, and the beer is called 720. And what's interesting about this beer, first of all, it's fucking strong. It is 11.9% alcohol by volume. So we're sharing this one. We're each having a third. And what's interesting about it is that I believe it was uh, brewed in mezcal barrels. So uh, we'll see if it has any uh, taste of mezcal to it. So shall we drink? Let's drink. Cheers. Cheers. 
I think this is very tasty. It is. It tastes heavy. It's kind sure. of malty and it's not doesn't taste like mezcal, really. It's a little sweet. I like it. Yeah, it's really, really sweet. I've seen this one as my least favorite. So yeah, I'm uh, pleasantly surprised. Yeah, not heavily carbonated. Um, but yeah, this is good. Yeah, yummy. Yeah, I think we're supposed to drink it more like a cascale, a little warmer, but it's kind of cold. Yes. Um, so uh, shall you, you want to begin? Yeah, yeah. So we have a ton of stuff that we'd like to talk to you about. Um, I think the first thing that I'm kind of the most curious about is that you wrote uh, a tweet thread, I think last week, about the GRE. And uh, it was widely retweeted, um, I think mostly positively, um, although I think there were a couple people who reacted not quite as positively. So can you give our listeners the context of what's going on with the GRE and um, what you were trying to say in that thread? So the context of the GRE is that some universities are considering removing the GRE from the admissions process or have already removed it. Um, I think one of the examples talked about on Twitter is Princeton removing it from their admissions process. Uh, but there's a larger shift away from standardized testing. This goes all the way down to K-12 tests in the United States with um, the political disagreements about the Common Core, which is a set of curriculum standards that had assessments anyway. It's turned into sort of a political issue. And so you see anti-standardized test movements at every level, not just at the GRE. And what are the arguments against standardized tests, including the GRE? The arguments that I see mostly on Twitter are that they perpetuate inequality, um, that they're unfair, that they decrease diversity. I think that's mostly it. So, I mean, I, so in my uh, previous incarnation as a stereotype threat researcher, um, you know, this was a big issue, like the, 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 the racial gap in achievement in standardized tests like the SAT or the GRE. Um, and I think, you know, one reason uh, research on stereotype threat was, became so popular is that it kind of offered an explanation, a situational explanation for some of these differences. But even forget about the explanation, you know, there's this kind of hard and uncomfortable fact that there's a big difference, uh, a racial gap in, in, in achievement. And I'm guessing that people like at Princeton, I believe, is Stanford also eliminating GREs, I thought they were contemplating it at the very least. There is a list somewhere on the internet of which schools have decided right. to eliminate the GRE. But so the idea here is that if you eliminate it, you're going to eliminate a big source of bias. You're going to eliminate this, 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 this you know, this bias, this racial bias. Um, but you seem to kind of uh, push back against that. Yeah, there's been a like bubbling up on my end about this. So the achievement gap is um, on all metrics. So it's on GPA, it's on educational attainment, it's on uh, standardized test scores. The achievement gap describes like a larger issue with institutional discrimination, access to education in the U.S. system more specifically than in other countries. So where you have less variability in access to quality education, you have less of an achievement gap. And the achievement gap occurs uh, for minorities is the focus of the achievement gap, um, but minorities tend to be centralized in low income areas. So the achievement gaps everywhere, it's in all metrics. Um, it has been decreasing over time as measured by the National Assessment for Educational Progress. But so to say that, <laughs> that because the achievement gap exists, that all these metrics are biased doesn't make sense to me. And it I think it's pretty unfortunate to look at group differences and achievement and say the metrics are biased instead of talking about the institutional discrimination and um, 
larger bias, like systematic lack of resources uh, for people of those groups in the education system. I mean, it seems to me, um, if I can make an analogy, that this is sort of like if you have a fever getting mad at the thermometer. Yeah. And I think that it's it's an un, it's unfortunate that uh, these groups suffer from discrimination if there's inequality in the education system. It seems reasonable to me that our assessments pick up on those differences and actually probably important. If it weren't for uh, differences in tests and bias tests, we wouldn't even have a concept of test bias. So the companies um, that develop these tests have made really big contributions and developed the validity theory that help us understand test bias. So a lot of test bias research uses item response theory. Item response theory and differential item function testing, which is how we detect bias test questions, was developed at the Educational Testing Service, which services the SAT and the GRE and a lot of other uh, tests. So it's just like the, the hypocrisy of people who care about bias and fairness and testing saying that it's the tests that are perpetuating the inequality is just really sad to me. It's like we're playing for the same team and now you're trying to kick me off. Because if there's a group of people who really care about fairness and equality in education, it's a lot of the people who work on these assessments. And there's decades of research on these assessments. So why don't we throw those out? What do you want to look at like pictures of people? You want to look at where they went to school? You want to look at what neighborhood they grow up in? Why don't we have letters of rec? It's like, what's the solution? I just, I find it really discouraging and sad. And people are like, why are you getting so worked up? It's like, if you care about equality in education, you care about measurement and assessment and that it's standardized, that it's been researched. So one thing that I hear sometimes from um, standardized testing critics is, well, really these tests only measure how good you are at taking standardized tests. And in the GRE context, um, it seems like people sometimes say, well, your GRE score doesn't actually predict your success in graduate school. What do you make of those sorts of arguments? I saw some of this people responding on Twitter saying, uh, the GRE only measures socioeconomic status or it only measures uh, how much you study for it or something like that. That is not true. That's just fundamentally not true. Um, I think that some of the issues with predicting success in grad school is that you homogenize the pool, selecting on some sort of minimum, you know, verbal or quantitative ability. And you can't expect after you've selected on that and decrease the variability to for it to further help you understand success. I think a better way to think about these standardized tests for admission is kind of like a, a floor or minimum um, threshold that institutions should consider students have some level of verbal and quantitative reasoning. Is it used that way? No. Is it sometimes used? Unfortunately, standardized test scores are sometimes used in university rankings. So if a graduate program has like an average higher average GRE or something, it can get ranked higher. That's just really unfortunate. It's really, really unfortunate. Um, but it makes perfect. I think this it, it's a false dichotomy. It makes perfect sense to me that your quantitative and verbal ability wouldn't completely explain your success in grad school. It doesn't mean that it's not an important thing to consider when you admit people into graduate school. Right. So it one thing that I've been struck by reading the debate about this stuff is that I do see people who 
I think should have the stats and methods training to realize, hey, there's a problem of restricted range here. And that plus like very noisy outcomes, which is, you know, whatever your metric of grad school success is, it's probably going to be quite noisy. Um, that would say that you shouldn't expect a strong relationship there or maybe any relationship. So that seems sort of obvious. And yet people keep making these arguments. So I've been struck by that. I don't know. It, it just seems like people like don't really think about this. Do you, do you have an idea of like what's going on there? Why is this in particular a thing that like so kind of pushes people's buttons to the point where they're saying things that in my opinion are kind of dumb? I think there's two things. One is that, well, people hate taking standardized tests. Like I didn't like taking the GRE or any standardized tests. I didn't do very well in the GRE. So I sure as hell didn't like it. I didn't like paying like $150 for it or whatever it was back when I took it. It was a lot of money to me at the time. I certainly didn't pay for test prep. So I get that. It's expensive. It does cut people out. It is a it is a barrier. It You get a low score. You feel a feeling. That really sucks. But I think another thing about it, and this is a less um, gracious or poor attribute like to make about these decisions, but some of these places that are nixing the GRE, it's almost like your GRE score didn't matter. If you didn't go to elite school or have a famous advisor, you weren't getting in there anyway. So stop pretending like it was about your ability or about your you know spark of a student who maybe doesn't have this elite experience. It wasn't. Yeah, so I guess this easy. Gets... Nix it. Everybody hates it. Nix it. All right, we're good. We're like we're less biased now. Win, win. So it, essentially, that this is kind of about optics for these places that uh, just select their students from a small pool anyway. I should say, you know, I'm generally pro GRE. Um, I don't think that it should be obviously the only thing we look at, but I think it's useful information. The first time that I took the GRE, do you guys want to guess what my uh, quantitative percentile score was? Oh, man. Is it correlated with your beer consumption? Or <laughs> I did not show up drunk. <laughs> uh, 65th. Jessica? Well, you're, you're kind of insinuating that it wasn't that great. So right. I was going to put you to about the middle. Yeah. Fourth. What? Fourth? Fourth. <laughs> That's like a really my intro stats students. I would say, what's the probability that you are in the fourth percentile? And they'd be like, That's a low probability prop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't know what happened. It was I don't think it's adaptive anymore. Um it was the adaptive. Oh, I had the form. adaptive one too. They so got rid of the adaptive one. It's not adaptive anymore. Man, you know you're going down the hill when you start going down the hill and that adaptive test. Exactly. So I think I just blew a few early easy ones yeah. and <laughs> I was like barely conscious. But hold on, you got into Cornell. Yeah, I retook it and then I had a seventy-fifth percentile score. All right. I just want to make it clear yeah, to right. all our listeners, still lower than mine. Uh, <laughs> my first thanks, try. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, right. You didn't even have to retake the fucking thing. Great. We're going to be measuring our dicks later, actually. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that we validate the dick Jessica measure. will arbitrate. To actually, sure we'll use a self-report scale. It'll be super right. Can we use the bottle opener as a standard? Oh. oh, I don't like that comparison. Okay, Mickey, we've done a quick beer swap. Uh, do you want to uh, describe what we're drinking now? Yeah, so we're still with uh, Brasserie Hericana. This is, uh, again, a numbered beer, 343. And I don't know how to how to really read this. It's like Grazie du Verger. Um, 
and it's a sour beer uh, with levure uh, hops. I'm not sure what how you, but but the translation that of that is in English is, um, and it's made with apples or uh, apples are in here. It's interesting. It has a crazy smell. It is smell also it? crazy tasting. It's, yeah, it's sour and like a little peaty or smoky yeah, or something. It's yeah, super wow. interesting. Very very smoky. Uh, this is a very very unusual. It's a beer. little like dirty like. It sort of smells like hay or it horses sort of or something. It tastes like manure. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but it's so it tastes really like shit. I gotta say your beer tastes like shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not in a bad way, though. No, not in a no. bad way. Uh, the best possible shit. So, okay. So I think, uh, uh, you know, we, we kind of ended uh, right before uh, we switched beers. Um, well, we ended with uh, you know, comparing GRE scores, but uh, we were talking about GRE and measurement and how critical it is uh, to, you know, to evaluate what we're measuring. And, uh, you know, you've studied this a lot, Jess, and, and, and the GREs, uh, according to you, and I think many other people, an incredibly studied, well-studied test, and as a result, might be well-suited for evaluation, although might have, um, might have been used in the past and even currently incorrectly. Um, but this really gets into your main, main, I think, area of interest, which is measurement. And, uh, you know, so you, you, you talk about measurement. I've seen you give talks about it. Uh, you've written a couple of papers. Uh, one that I, uh, I'm not sure if it's a paper, it's just a talk series, uh, Measurement Schmeasurement, which I love. That might have to be uh, uh, perhaps the title of this episode. But tell, you know, tell, me, tell us why we should care about measurement, because I learned nothing about measurement in, in uh, my grad training, and I'm doing really, really well. So we kept that important. Right? <laughs> oh, God. So it seems pretty obvious to me that you should care about measurement because you have to measure everything that you're studying. It's sort of like step one in the scientific method. You know? Listen, I have a concept and I think, huh, right. I, want to measure, I want to measure sense of humor. So right. like, I'll just ask someone, what's your sense of humor like? That's a perfectly valid way of measuring things, no? Yeah, well, you know, maybe it is. I guess the, the question that I'm asking people to think about is, are you in fact measuring what you think you're measuring? And it's important to remember that if you just made up some questions right then and there, there's a good possibility you're not measuring what you think you're measuring. And then you have some experimental effect and you don't know what it is because you don't know what you manipulated in the first place. So that's sort of the larger issue is that um, once you put a number on something, it's really easy just to assume that's what it is and not think about what's the process that made that number happen. Is that process just bullshit? Is that process rapid responding? Is that process, I always tell people if they're doing, like using the participant pool to collect data on students, imagine the students chugging a beer while they're taking out your, taking your survey. You know, is the number in the final data set relevant? When that number gets higher, does that mean it's more of what you were measuring? When that number gets lower, does it mean it was less of what you were measuring? It's not clear to me that's always the case. So are you talking here specifically about self-report items, questionnaires, and so on? Or is this broader? Like sometimes psychologists want to look at a behavioral measure, for example, like how close do you sit to the Black Confederate or um, how quickly do you make a decision to shoot or not shoot an armed or unarmed suspect? Do your critiques of how we do this apply to those sorts of measures as well? Yeah, so I guess when I'm talking about measurement, I'm thinking more broadly about there's a number in the data set and you, that number has meaning and you have the responsibility of assigning the number meaning. I think it's a pretty big scientific responsibility. It's probably the very first one 
that we have is that we assign these numbers meaning. And those meanings uh, run away with us after we do that. They could be surveys, they could be uh, behavioral tasks, but you always make a leap from the number to this is some process. This is this person is more racist because they're faster to shoot, for example. And I think that it's our responsibility to provide evidence that that's true. And if we're not providing evidence that that's true, there's a fundamental piece of our science that just lacks evidence. You're not going to have, for any claim you make, you're not going to have 100% of all the evidence for some experimental effect. You know, there's all sorts of evidence you could collect that you're right. One of the, it seems to me at least at first, one of the first pieces of evidence you should be thinking about is, well, does that number actually capture variability in the thing we're trying to understand? In my quantitative expertise is in like structural equation modeling, and I deal a lot with factor analysis. So I tend to work with measures that are surveys and um my training is from a school of education. So a lot of stuff about standardized testing. So I know more about the quantitative side of those measures, but that isn't to say that any number that you have in a data set where you assume that, that number captures some meaningful concept, you can't provide evidence that it's valid. Right. Um, I guess I've been thinking about this because I, I reviewed a paper recently that was critiquing some of the work on you know, racial bias broadly from a social cognitive perspective uh, that talked about, so there's uh, you know Josh Carell's shooter bias task where you sit people, typically undergraduates, down in front of like a, a laptop and they see a picture, like a 2D picture pop up on the screen and on the screen is a person and uh, it uh, like in this you know, environment, uh, and they're holding either a gun or not a gun, and you have to decide by pushing keys as quickly as possible whether to shoot them or not. And the finding is that for white undergrads, at least, um, they make more errors in the direction of shoot if it's a black person, and they make more directions errors in the direction of don't shoot if it's a white person. And that's interpreted as saying something about the rates of police, like real police, shooting black and white people out in the world. And the argument in this paper was there's a whole raft of like untested assumptions there about are the undergraduates a good representation of what the cops would do? Is this very kind of abstract paradigm a good representation of what real police would you know, be encountering. They get lots of other information as they're going into a call. Like there's just a ton of other stuff going on. And it seems to me like this is like almost a more difficult thing than establishing that like a scale um, gives you the same results across different subgroups, for example, because you're like, you have to make this link between the lab study and the real world thing that it's intended to explain. And how do you even do that? And reaction time is always tricky. And a lot of this stuff, there's this like leap of faith because you're saying, I think that reaction time is racial bias. And if your uh, evidence is that these undergraduates did this task faster, it seems reasonable to me that people would be like, not really willing to take the leap of faith there, not enough evidence for me. Um, so I think questioning the validity evidence of any measure is just like questioning the evidence for any claim in a scientific study. And just like we say that that study's findings aren't generalizable because they were in some sort of pretty contrived situation in the lab, we can say that about our measurement instruments as well. And it's important to do so to the extent that we think the cognitive processes are different that lead to those behaviors than the cognitive processes that lead to the clicking and the 
you know, maybe you can make an argument that they're the same. Therefore, that should generalize. But that's an important issue. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to consider. Rachel, I, maybe I'm going to ask the question in a slightly different way than, than you did, Yoel, because I think your question is really about generalizability. So who, what's to say that, you know, you're button clicking on this reaction time task among undergraduates would generalize to, you know, the context we really care about, which is police officers out in the wild. But what if we want to make a, a, a much more modest claim? And that is that simply that undergraduates are, you know, show implicit bias. Um, isn't that a face valid way of doing it? Um, so look, they're, they're shooting black, unarmed black people more, therefore bias. I mean, is that, uh, is, is there a leap there as well? Or I mean, there's always a leap because we always say what it is that we're measuring. That's really important. We're like, there's reaction time and we say, okay, it's implicit bias. Maybe somebody else comes along and says, okay, it's explicit bias or it's just bias or it's whether or not they have to pee. I don't know. Like you could name the thing that you're measuring, whatever you want. That's a really big and important decision. Is it okay for reaction time? I don't think any reaction time is like obviously face valid. When we think about face valid, we think of like your original example, like, is this funny to you? Unless you're like, okay, it seems like it measures if it's funny. But things like reaction time, you have to triangulate multiple sources of evidence, I think, to make a strong case that it captures anything. And sometimes you're dealing with constructs that are purportedly outside of awareness that's a whole other uh level and the only thing you have to go on are maybe experimental manipulations relationships with other constructs that seem like you really have to triangulate across multiple indices there i think to make a strong claim um so i guess that you know uh the same argument can be made about, you know, a much more famous test, the IAT, the implicit association test. I think we went very quickly from, oh, look, you have this reaction time difference to you're showing implicit prejudice, like end of story. That's it. Like, for example, I um, I'm on a uh, I'm the, the dean's rep on a tenure committee uh, uh, and I'm being asked to do uh, implicit bias training. Like this is a standard procedure now for representatives of the dean. Um, so this is influence us. And, that, and the reason we have this is because, of course, um, on average, people show this reaction time difference. Uh, and, you know, I'm asking this question because, you know, I, we agree. Like, there's, there, are, there are problems with that. So I, I want to know what are the problems? Like, well, why, why can we just say, you know, it's done. It's finished. We, we show the reaction time difference. Like, I don't need any more. So this goes back to what you all said earlier about you can do a lot of research in a certain measure and then people can go off and use it for whatever the hell they want. And there has been a shift um, in the past decade, for sure, um, in validity research to say that well, we're not we're not validating the test. We're validating how the test is used. And that's what we need evidence for. So if you're going to use uh, IAT to decide if your employees are implicitly biased and then give them bias training, uh, you probably need a different set of evidence to show that it's actually working than you have experimental participants and you're running some sort of cognitive study or something like that, where you're not going to assign people a score and make some sort of decision about them. And the evidence you need for these different situations is going to vary. I, th I think that's a useful though there's disagreement about um, if we should think about validity that way, test use versus tests overall, there's a disagreement about that amongst the validity theorists. I think it's useful to think about it that way because 
the evidence that you you need to take a construct like implicit bias, move it into the real world, make institutional decisions about how its scores are going to be used or training or interventions um, is a lot different than we see the small difference in reaction time. And when we include measures of explicit bias, you know, we, we don't recover that much explaining above and beyond. Like, you know, in your study where you're just trying to understand how things are related or small effects in the lab, that's really different than making institutional decisions about the world that we live in and how we navigate it. So um, getting back to more kind of traditional pen and paper or like self-report type scale measures, you've actually written quite a bit about suboptimal measurement practices in in social personality psych specifically. Can you say a bit more about what the most common ones of those are and how common they are? Sure. Yeah. This is related to what we're talking about already that I think that I just have a more seems to be like comprehensive or nuanced view of the sort of evidence that you should have if you make claims about measures. And it seems to me that there's no evidence that measures measure what they are supposed to measure in many studies. So that's a lot of the, I think what you're talking about is some of the research I've been working on is more meta science. So reading papers, seeing what variables are they trying to measure? How did they measure them? Um, in psychology, we do use self-report scales a lot. There's a known, there are known ways to provide validity evidence for self-report scales. And there's none of that. So, hi, my name's Mickey. I want to measure this. I wrote three questions. They must be the best questions. They're the greatest questions. They're the bestest questions ever. They measure this. Okay, that's enough. And I just don't think that's enough. Just like I don't think that you can just say your theory works without running any studies to show that it works. I guess part of what I am saying is that we should view our claims about what we're measuring in the same way we view any other claim that it needs evidence. It probably needs multiple sources of evidence. If it doesn't have it, that's a limitation. And so we, I see things, to answer your question, sorry, I see things like scales are made up, measures are made up, they've never been studied beyond just that study that they're reported in. Uh, basic information about scales isn't reported. Um, how many questions are on, say, uh, so isolating just the surveys, how many questions are on the survey, what the response scale is on the survey, how the survey was scored. You want to replicate that? You can't. You don't know, even know how many questions were on the damn thing. Um, other, the, I guess, second to those kind of basic information missing is just using reliability coefficients as the only piece of information about it. And that seems to work really well uh, for a lot of journals. Like, we created the scale. And normally it doesn't even say we created the scale. Uh, there's a lot of instances where authors will just say, there was the scale. It has an alpha of 0.8. What scale? What are you talking about? It has an alpha of 0.8. Um, and it's like that represents its validity. That sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Right. It's it's working. It's published. You're I feel like you're denigrating my field. <laughs> uh like how 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 like uh widespread is this in, in social psychology? So the meta science like study that I did, I looked at JPSP papers. It's so the best. This is not even like representative. This is the best of social psychology. It's uh, those are pretty, those, it's like maybe half, half of the measures used that were scales would like not have any source. So they were made up just on the fly. And then most of those would just have a reliability coefficient as the only, um, 
indice or evidence that that scale measures what they think it measures. But I've I have looked at all of the measures used in the reproducibility project. Um, that spans multiple journals, Journal of Experimental Psychology General, Psych Science, and JPSP. You see the same thing there. You see that uh, measures are often used with no validity evidence. Uh, so that's just, I think, a common practice. It, it probably does vary by subfield, uh, but in some fields, it seems more accepted than in others. Like in an educational psych, I've been working on a systematic review where it's we've only seen it's the minority of a time where scales are used that have not had a validity study. Uh, for example, this isn't a specific uh, theoretical domain, so not to all of educational psychology. So yeah, maybe it's just social psych. They're the worst. So. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I don't think uh, you're wrong there. Uh, <laughs> so I want to ask you about what the relationship is between this problem that you're outlining, which is the problem of, you know, we, we, we think we're measuring something and we give it a name, therefore we must be measuring it, but really we have no evidence that that's in fact what we're measuring. And so what's the relationship between this kind of fundamental issue of, of measurement and the replication crisis? Um, are they linked? Are they orthogonal? Uh, yeah. What's the, yeah. How, how are they related? This is a, this is a, big issue a big like question to answer because i think there's multiple ways that uh lack of measurement validity broadly defined relates to the replication crisis and in the simplest way it could just be that you can't actually replicate studies because you don't know shit about the measurement like and this happened in the reproducibility study oh we could we actually couldn't figure out what the measure was that they used that's just a sort of practical thing that we can fix with transparency it's a problem. Um, but there's a, a second issue related to transparency, which is that uh, when it's not clear how the measures were used, things like number of response options, number of items, then it's up to you in the study to decide those things. I'll, I don't know what response scale to use, so I'll use this one. Well, then say you have a corpus of research, you have 30 studies, they all use a slightly different version of the measure. Well, now you don't know if you try to replicate any of those, if there's measurement heterogeneity contributing to the replication or not. So there's this whole, it's, it, these are just measurement artifacts, like little methods affects things. Uh, the number of response options influences the variance of the response. Variances influence the results of statistical tests. That's a clear link between replicability, like with replicability, if the variances are uh, different. Reliability also influences the power to detect a replicate. Uh, an effect. So maybe you're less likely to replicate if you use an unreliable measure. So there's a lot of obvious things like that. But there's another issue that's more conceptual, which is that if you replicate effects with measures that you don't know what you're measuring, what does that mean? It's like befuddling. It's like the measures. The, so, okay, so the study replicate, all the measures are bullshit. Okay, you replicated bullshit. I just don't get the point. Okay, so you don't replicate the bullshit. Well, were you ever measuring the bullshit accurately anyway? Or or maybe you were measuring the bullshit accurately, but the bullshit doesn't have any significant effect on whatever it was you were doing. So there's bigger conceptual issues with measurement and replicability that aren't just related to sort of statistical problems or transparency problems. And I think you can replicate all day long, but if you weren't ever measuring the thing you meant to measure in the first place, you're still doing meaningless bullshit work. This example seems similar conceptually to, let's say you have 
a manipulation that has some bad confound in it. And that might produce a replicable effect, but does that, I mean, should that make us more confident about the theory that it's intended to support? Like the issue is in the original and in the replication. Right. Yeah. So the, you know, and people can argue about constructs and how representative they are and how representative the scales are. If you've named the construct, right, if it's just capturing some other thing that nobody uh, thought about. And so if you replicate that and that uncertainty remains, that uncertainty trickles into however you interpret the downstream effect. So if you weren't sure if you were measuring students' motivation in the first place and you find some big effect on students' motivation, that uncertainty remains. Well, we have some big effect. We're not sure exactly what it's about. Is it about motivation? Is it about test wiseness? Is it about chugging beers? You just can't tell. Right. So, you know, Mickey said he never had formal training in measurement in graduate school, and I didn't either. Um, and I think that's actually a more recent development because I know some older folks who complain about this actually saying like, well, when we were in graduate school, we had like multiple courses on measurement and that was considered to be a big deal. So I'm curious, like, do you have an intuition for why social psych stopped caring about this? I don't know if it's that any certain area of psychology stopped caring. Um, there have been some systematic reviews of Leona Aiken has done two systematic reviews of graduate training in quantitative psychology, which includes measurement theory, psychometrics, stuff like that. And it's just um, like sort of dismal results. A lot of PhD programs don't have experts in various areas of quantitative psychology, including measurement. And so students don't have the opportunity. They don't have the faculty in their programs. They don't have the opportunity to take those kinds of classes. So Maybe it was the case early, uh, I don't know, long ago that the field was smaller and that in any given PhD program, you might have an expert um, who could teach some of those courses. But it's also there's a history of um, there being less methods, people in psychology at different types of schools. So certain like Ivy Leagues tend not to have. Uh, measurement or quantitative psych programs, you tend to see quantitative psych programs, at least in the U.S. and like uh, research intensive state schools. So, you know, there's histories of like where people are located. And so if you didn't go to school there, you're not getting the training. And that's a very small number of places where there's actually a concentration in quantitative methods. So I don't know if they stopped caring, but there's a shortage of people who train in quantitative methods or psychometrics. They have a lot of opportunities to go outside of academia to go and study the bias of the GRE. They make more money and have better work hours doing that than they do in academia. And then they don't end up your faculty member who teaches you that. And you don't seem to have to care to publish. So why hire anybody anyway? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I do find this concerning, right? I mean, that our best journals don't seem to care about you know, the things we're measuring. And if we don't know what we're measuring, what the fuck is the point of it all? So, you know, it, it seems really, uh, really backwards. Um, but at the same time, so this whole conversation is reminding me a little bit about this, uh, kind of like, I guess, dueling blog posts from a few years ago um, uh, between uh, Eli Finkel and uh, Joe Simons, or was, it, or was it Simmons? Simmons, Simmons, sorry. Um, and Eli Finkel was saying, listen, you know, uh, you know, there are many, many concerns for a good science, you know, so replicability is one. 
Um, validity is another like internal, external generalizability. Um, you know, uh, the samples being non weird. I mean, there's many, many concerns. In other words, and replicability is just one of them. And uh, Joe responded saying, "Yeah, I agree. Like, absolutely. But replicability is first. It's like without replicability, the rest is garbage. So even if I am replicating a." Um, a study with garbage measures, at least I've already gotten the, on the first rung of science. At least I can get a known effect. Second step maybe is let's make sure that thing is actually, you're measuring what you think you're measuring. So what do you, what, what do you make of this argument of the precedence of replicability, which again, some people have argued is kind of like the reliability. You need to, a thing needs to be reliable before it's valid. And then afterwards are kind of concerns about validity. Well, I mean, I don't want to get in an academic argument with these people, but I totally disagree. But you can think about having evidence that you're measuring what you think you're measuring as something you need to replicate. You should probably replicate that first before you replicate the downstream effects on that thing. But replication is still king. It's still king in measurement. If you are measuring something, you need evidence that you're measuring it, and you need to replicate that evidence. And it's typical sort of survey validation study you would you would have you would collect multiple samples and you would show in multiple samples that you replicate so in that way i agree wait you agree with who you agree i with, would agree wait with the replicability with, comes first well that replicability is still a first shot but in this case you're replicating the evidence for the measure i don't know if it makes sense to go down the line with a measure that you haven't replicated and go to study something else with that measure. So I disagree that just replication of any old thing comes first. Um, and so I measurement for you comes first. Me like the, the, the validity but doesn't of it the have measure to come is, is first? Primary. Like in the pipeline of everything we do, we theorize, we measure, we collect data, we do the analysis, or we do an experiment and we do the analysis. The problem with measurement in psychology is that there's all these other things, analyses we can do before we go and study it further. We have to like replicate that stuff first. I think that is just like replicating anything else. I, this distinction between measurement and the rest of effects is so confusing to me. It's like, no, you think you're measuring something. That's your first effect of interest. Go find evidence, go find that groups that should be higher are higher, groups that should be lower are lower, that you should be able to predict this outcome, that if you manipulate it, you can see differences in the scores. Go find that out first. Tell me what construct you're measuring, what the theory is. That's the, like, that sounds like psychology to me. That sounds like what we're doing. So measurement is king. So measurement first. <laughs> it's just first. I don't know if it's king. Because then you want to intervene. You want to understand human behavior. You want to understand the human psyche. You know, I don't know if it's king, but it's it's sort of first in the pipeline, or it's early in the pipeline. It certainly comes after philosophy of science and your just theory. Yeah, I mean, I I think some of this has to do with just like kind of the environment you're in or the type of research questions you tend to ask. So like in a business school, and they're more often like, how much are people willing to pay for this thing of ice cream? Or do they choose this car or that car? And there's like, well, you kind of have to worry less about, you know, this mapping to some like underlying latent construct because you're kind of interested in just the thing itself, right? But I take your point that 
in many areas of psychology, that's not really what we want to do. We want to assess some observed thing that's supposed to represent the thing that we actually care about. And if we don't know we're doing that, then what's the point of any of it? But I, even even in places where you're observing objective things, there's a lot of work to be done in measurement. I mean, think about physics. It's been hundreds of years they've been thinking about how to like deal with the infrared and figure out the light. I don't know anything about physics, but they've been like <laughs> <laughs> they've been like building machines. They've been building machines to measure shit in physics for hundreds of years. In psychology, we were just like, ah, no. We asked you that question. We got it. I don't think so. It's like, why don't we spend a couple hundred years trying to make sure we're measuring? It is true that if it's if if you're like in sounds like some of the stuff you're describing in somewhere like economics, where you're looking at like observed behaviors and you're studying those observed behaviors, like buying behaviors. Well, that is what it is. You're not making a leap to like, well, they bought all those cars and now they're lesser men. You know, <laughs> like what's the evidence they're lesser men? You know, I don't know. So I you're right. Like smaller claims need less evidence. That's consistent with the replication debate overall. You know, smaller claims need less evidence. Um, but to push back on you a little bit, Yoel. So unless you were referring to observed, like actual buying behavior and consumer behavior, giving someone a contrived choice between what ice cream flavor do you like or what car do you prefer, we assume there is an association between those preferences and real life consumer behaviors, right? But there might not be a one-to-one -one mapping between, again, this contrived kind of uh, choice architecture and what they actually do in the real life, in real world, right? Yeah, but but to me that, okay, so it, like, it has this overlap with like external validity or something where, I don't know, that does seem like a later question, right? Like first see if willingness to pay is like reliably affected by this thing and then see if it actually translates to buying behavior by doing a field study or something like that. I think I think there I am kind of more on Joe's side where like what you're raising is a, a question of, well, can we actually generalize this to another context? That's maybe the inspiration actually for doing this study. But the argument holds that you can go and find evidence for that claim that when we ask people in the lab if they would do this or that that it actually and to some degree captures if they would do this or that like you can do research to to put some weight behind that claim if to the extent that people like mickey raise that concern right right i think that's this the validity is, research yeah no this is actually separable in the sense that like ideally we would have well-validated measures that get used across studies so like the question of like, is study X replicable isn't overlapping with is the measure in that study valid because it's, you know, a measure that they made up for that study. Right. So you could separately examine the validity of these measures that like lots of people would be using. And then as long as I'm using an established measure, I could point to that work to say, like, OK, here's why I'm on firm ground measuring this thing this way. Right. Yeah. Or at least if you're interpreting a replicated effect like you're interpreting an effect of a replication a lot of people can come at you they can be like well you didn't do this you didn't do this or you did that and, and to the extent that you have some validity evidence for the measures you can rule out that that's one of the problems and that's a nice thing to do in a replicated effect because replications are difficult to interpret so yeah you, you could say well we don't think that this measurement validity is uh, an issue we've used measures that across these studies have this evidence. And so we're, we're not going to think that it's the measure that gave, you know, it's a measure specific effect or it failed because it was unreliable or something like that. But 
if replication is king, there must certainly be examples where things don't replicate because the measure is just really shitty. And that's an important thing to consider in any given replication study. I don't see that written about in any replication studies. Well, we did this whole thing, and then afterwards we realized this measure was pretty shitty. And actually, that discussion could be had in the stereotype threat research. Yeah. So, Mickey, I think you mentioned um, on the last podcast people doing validity studies on ego depletion inductions. And that seems to me to be like along those same lines. Yeah, that's right. So it's kind of a related uh, issue, but it's on the IV side, right? So I think we've been speaking mostly about, you know, um, the, the dependent variables, things we're actually measuring. But it strikes me that the exact same criticisms could be levied against our inductions. We assume that um, by getting people to cross out the letter E with some convoluted rules about what e, which E's to cross, which E's not to cross, that's a great way to you know, tax uh, self-control, it's effortful, et cetera. But up until recently, there was no actual evidence that that's the case. We just assumed that was the case because it was face valid. So you know, what work have you seen done on validating um, procedures or independent variables or inductions? Well, I, I don't know if I'm privy to any really good work on that. I do think it's a, applicable to describe, to think about your manipulations in the same way you think about your measures. Um, and, you know, Mickey, we've talked about this before, but you're making some sort of argument that the procedure you're inducing causes this and that. And you're doing validation by finding evidence that that argument's right. And really good manipulations. There's definitely, you know, in cognitive psychology, they do manipulations. They have mathematical models that if the, if this is occurring, we expect this response pattern. If this is occurring, this we expect this response pattern. And they have models that you can show the discrepancy between the data and what the model would be. So there's definitely work out there like that. It's not my area of expertise, um, but you could apply that's why this whole conversation about validity is larger than just measurement, because you could apply this idea that you're making a claim, you need evidence to support it. It's just given whatever you need the evidence for, your methodology is probably going to be different. You need the evidence for some sort of experimental manipulation. You might need to test comparison manipulations. You might need to test multiple measures to, you know, if it's effort or whatever, different ways of measuring that. So I don't know a whole lot about the work, but I think it, you can use the same idea to to think about all of these issues. I mean, I'm just listening to you now uh, and I'm exhausted, oh, right? God. I mean, it's like, this is fucking hard. I thought science was supposed to be easy. I mean, no, like- No, you didn't. <laughs> That's what they told you when you were a babe. Science <laughs> gonna be so easy, Mickey. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I'm hearing this conversation. It reminds me so much uh, of this Paul Rosen article. It's a fantastic Paul Rosen article, uh, a 2001 article where he, he compares psychology to biology. And and, uh, and he says, like, he suggests that we've skipped all these steps just to make us appear like a science, to make it appear scientific. Um, yeah, like throwing numbers on stuff that we didn't know if they meant anything. Right. Wah, putting wah. Yeah, putting numbers on stuff, you know, making comparisons, uh, yeah, statistics, um, hypotheses, uh, test <laughs> of hypotheses. Um, and it seems like just the basic, basic work of validating what we're measuring, validating our inductions. We we forgot about that. We skipped. I mean, we, I mean, social psychologists, I think other disciplines have done a lot better than we have. Um, but what the fuck? What the fuck did we do? I have no idea.
This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are at Four Beers Pod on Twitter, where you can DM us or at mention us. If you'd prefer to email us, our email address is uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com, which will go to both of us. And our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to our current episode and our back catalog. Finally, if you've been enjoying the show, we'd like to ask you to please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And evidently, it really does, because we've been hearing from a few folks who found us just by browsing the iTunes categories. And the more ratings and reviews you have, uh, the more favorably you get placed uh, in those categories. So if you're enjoying the show, please do that. Mickey, have I left anything out? That was that was perfect, Yoel, other than you being about like 1.2 speed. Um, it was perfect. Uh, so I'm now on beer three. Four. Four. I thought this but was you had like four beer, beers. So. It's not four each, though. What? Um, <laughs> what, 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 <laughs> who are you people? It's not important. <laughs> Where am I? Oh, Our name is not important. Um, okay, so I've actually been waiting. I've been holding these beer for a few months now, Jess, uh, thinking of you specifically. Uh, I got these beer in Prince Edward County, which is a couple hours uh, east of Toronto. This lovely place uh, on Lake Ontario. I love it. I, I go there every summer. Um, and I stumbled upon this uh, brewery in the town. The small little beautiful town is uh, called Wellington. And it's called Midtown Brewing. And I spoke to, um, uh, you know, some people who work there. And, and he told me about his brewmaster, who is from England. And he kind of brews like old-fashioned uh, English beers, kind of standard English beers. So anyhow, we got an ESB, an extra special bitter. Uh, and uh, I, that's all it says. So ESB, I'm looking forward to trying it. Uh, so cheers. Right. Cheers. It's uh, bitter. Yes, it's good. It's yummy. Yeah. It's sort of mild, but bitter, it, which just doesn't make sense. But. Yeah. No, it's nice, though. It's like it, it feels very uh, conventional in the best possible way. Okay, so I'm pissed at you guys. Why? Right, we left the last for the break. And we're like, oh, measurement. We're so tired. We have to take a break. Science is hard. It's like, what? what are you talking about? Science is hard. Like, isn't it just your job to do science? That was, that was Mickey who said I that. I mean, I'm just, listen, man, I am a lazy, lazy man. And you know, man, I, I, well, that's how, I mean, lazy men can do whatever they want. You know? uh, I mean, I, you know, it, it could be because I'm a man. It's also could be, it could be because I'm just lazy. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I don't want to work hard. No, right. I was of course kidding about science being easy. It's supposed to be easy. I know it's hard. I think, I think, I, I, I of course was making the point that like we just fucking skipped all these steps, and and we it was silly. We should have known, um, and I should have known. But measurement is science too, Mickey. It's fun. Okay, that's all I'm trying to say. Measurement's fun too. And I'm pissed at you guys who brought me on this podcast to talk about how it's boring and depressing and complicated. Yeah, science is complicated. Okay, deal. That is true, but complicated is not boring. So, so yeah, maybe maybe we get into some um, lighter material. 
And uh, do, okay. you, do you like that segue? I've that done... was perfect. So one thing that our listeners um, tend to like hearing about is where pe- how people got to where they are. And I wonder if you would be willing to describe the path that brought you to where you are today, um, assistant professor at McGill, the Harvard of uh, Montreal. <laughs> Oh man. Uh I went to school for a long time, just like you guys did. I did a postdoc. I got a job at McGill. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh what are you asking? Well, I'm asking, you know, I don't think most people grow up wanting to be professors of quantitative psychology. <laughs> no offense. Right. So so how did that work? Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, so I don't remember growing up wanting to be anything. I'm from Kentucky. Um, and, uh, some backstory, my family's really super poor, uneducated, you know, in jail, on drugs, all that. Um, so I didn't really think a whole lot about that when I was growing up, but I had good, good mentors and, um, high school and, other people who kind of said, maybe you should go to college. And I went thinking that I wanted to work in kind of mental health services. But I took research methods and statistics and really liked it. I was like the only person who likes statistics. And I decided to do a switch my major to psychology and do a Bachelor of Science. And I had to take more statistics to get the Bachelor of Science. And I took all my stats classes over in the stats department and ended up doing an area of concentration. So I, I just got really interested in idea that we could study. Um, I was interested in equity in education because as a poor person, getting an education helped me get out, get out of my like own economic situation um, growing up in like extreme poverty. So I felt really passionate about that. And I thought I wanted to like counsel people and do therapy. But then I realized, no, I want to study. I want to study that uh, study. You know, what can we measure and what can we understand? And I liked the analytical side of it, the research method side, the statistic side, the more quantitative side. And I, I think that's just intrinsic interest that felt better to me to work on than like taking classes about substance use and abuse and stuff that hit a little too close to home for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I did a little honors thesis project on predictors of college success as an undergraduate working with the institutional research office that crunches the data at universities, and a lot of statistics and fact analysis and stuff like that. And thought, I don't know enough about the methods. And so I did my master's in quantitative psych. And that, it, I often tell people that to go to graduate school, you almost need to have gone to graduate school already. Because you don't get how it works. Uh, but doing a master's degree first helped me as somebody who didn't know shit about higher education learn. Like, what is graduate school and how does it work? So I realized what I was really interested in was studying measurement and methodology and so I went to University of Connecticut to do my PhD specifically in measurement in a school of education. Um, and then I postdoc in, in quantitative psych. I sort of sit between two disciplines, quantitative psych and educational measurement. So I've gone between my PhD in education versus my postdoc in psychology. And I ended up in McGill because I'm in a dual body problem and me and my spouse got jobs at McGill. And um, we had a limited number of options when we were thinking about where to go. And McGill seemed like the best fit for, for both of us. Uh, we did, I did consider going back to a school of education where I would be doing psychometric stuff, but more in the education context. Um, so really decided to go to McGill. Uh, one of the main reasons, besides being a great institution, 
and being in Montreal where we can smoke joints and not wear our bras is to stay in Canada because my country's a trash can fire. And so I love Canada and I'm hopefully here to stay. So this background that you're describing, um, so you're not only a first generation college grad in your family, but you grew up, you know, actually poor. It's pretty different from the background of most people who become professors who tend to come from upper middle class educated backgrounds. And so I'm curious, first of all, how you feel that, you know, the way you grew up affects your perspective today and whether you notice blind spots um, in your colleagues who don't share your background. I think if you're just a poor person, you know that you got shit to deal with that poor other people who aren't poor don't have to deal with. So like I had all my educational experiences had financial stressors. I had issues with healthcare. So I did my education in the US. I didn't have healthcare. I've literally had a GoFundMe campaign to raise, I raised $10,000 to pay for my teeth after I wrecked my face um, in an accident that I had in graduate school. So I just have had these stressors along the way that in some ways, I think it's helped me not compare myself to others. So there's a lot of people out there just doing better than me, being smarter than me, writing more papers than me, going to better schools than me. I don't care about that shit. I'm just trying to like live, have teeth, <laughs> you know? So I think there's a perspective that um, when you struggle with that kind of stuff, you know, at least I've always known, I'm just always sort of been in a different situation than the other people I'm around. And you just deal with that. You just say, those people don't get this challenge that I have. And you got two options at that point, make it happen for yourself or wallow in it. I, I don't know. So I just tend to choose, you know, make it happen for myself. If I show up and do what I need to do, hopefully I'll get ahead. I may not get ahead as fast as somebody else who doesn't have those problems. And if I spend a lot of time comparing myself to that person, I'm probably going to be disappointed. So I tend not to engage in that uh, maybe as much as others. I see a lot of colleagues stress out about those sorts of comparisons and I tend not to engage with that. I never really felt like I was a part of the club. So I don't feel a need to keep up with the club, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of moved by what you just said and all the, like, really the serious challenges that, that were in front of you. And uh, I love your attitude as well, um, kind of the way you're dealing with it. Um, and, you know, so I, I too am a first generation college student, but like hearing your story, I, I, you know, it, my, my upbringing is uh, radically different. So, uh, yes, well, my parents are, you know, uh, not educated. My, my dad didn't graduate high school. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a cultural milieu where education was stressed, was encouraged. You know, I was expected to go to college, even though, again, I'll be the first one in my, you know, my family. Um, but uh, it sounds like uh, not only were you not encouraged, like, was it neutral? Like, were you discouraged from, from going to university, um, you know, completing your studies or, or, or uh, was it just kind of a passive neutral uh, influence, like your, 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 the milieu you're in? Yeah, I, uh, well... It depends on who in my family you're talking to. Um, I had a single mom situation, but I was a transient child, so I moved a lot, and my mom lived, moved a lot, and I didn't always live with my mom. So I wasn't exactly homeless, but I've lived with my aunt, I lived with my sister, I lived with my grandmother. And so it depends on like which I think of like the women who raised me kind of as my family. And some of those women were more supportive about me going to college than others. Um, I had a pretty serious fight 
when I was, um, I dropped out of high school and had a lot of issues when I was in high school. When I decided to go to university, I had a really serious fight with my mom. I remember I went, I had moved out when I was 17. I went back to the house. It's like six or eight months later, I had this huge fight with my mom. And she said, you know, what do you think you're doing? You couldn't finish high school. How are you going to finish college? Because I had decided to go to college. And she was like, you need to get off your high horse and blah, 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 blah. And I just, I thought like, oh my God, the world's ending. And I remember I went back and I was living with my sister at the time in her basement. I was like, wah, wah, sister, sister, my mom said these terrible things to me. How could I really do this? You know, my sister had gone to community college, but not a university. And my sister was like, don't listen to that crazy bitch, you know, just go. So, and my aunt and like other members of my family were there for me when maybe other parts of my family didn't understand. So it's not like I didn't have any support, but it it wasn't easy for everybody to understand that I was spending money that I didn't have. I have student loan debt. Um, and I, you know, at one point I lived on campus. That's much more expensive. I joined a sorority. I studied abroad. I mean, I didn't just go to college. I did go to the Hoban College down the road. But once I got there, I decided to go all in. And that was sort of difficult for some of my family to deal with. Um, but other people in my family were really supportive. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm taken by your story. Um, so if you could go back and, uh, give your younger self, you know, one piece of advice, um, what do you think that would be? Like, what would you, you know, yeah. What would you tell yourself that you know now that you didn't know then? I hate this question. <laughs> I mean, I got like, I don't really, I'm not, some, so I have like a lot of bad things in my past, you know, I was a, a bad teen. I dropped out of high school. I did a bunch of bad things, you know. I don't know. I try not to regret any of the decisions I made. And so it's not like I would go back and change something. I guess when I think about um I've worked with like kids who go to inner city schools before I went to university. I I did that for a little bit. And I would just give them the advice that you don't really need to let what other people think you can do dictate what you can do. Um, you know, your experience don't let that limit your imagination. If you want to go to university or you want to do something that your family didn't do or you don't feel like you belong there or you don't feel like you should be doing it. If you've got the passion and motivation to do it, you might as well try it because that's what we all need at the end of the day is just the will to get up in the morning and like do what we're going to do. And so I guess, you know, the advice is just to not let that limit you. And that is what I did sometimes with the struggle, sometimes with not with the struggle. Um, I probably didn't need to struggle so much about some of these decisions. It was the right decision to go to college. It was the right decision to go to grad school. That was a big one that a lot of people doubted because that, that was more school, no job. I probably didn't need to doubt that as much. I just need to do what I had the motivation to do. I felt I want to give you a hug, Jess. But, oh, uh, God. Oh, my God. But, uh, gonna, but I think we'll... I'm just we'll... going to drink this beer now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll be drinking later after the after we, we stop recording. I'm not and... depressed. You guys don't have to worry. No, I'm depressed. I'm all good. I'm, just... I'm living in Montreal. Bras off, joints out. See, yeah, the, dr- the, the, the bra comment, like, the, is, it, is this pr- a, a thing in Montreal? Like, I mean, what are you talking about? Yeah, you hop on the city bike, the Bixie, don't have a bra on, go to the mountain, smoke a joint. That's a Montreal life. You know, Mickey, what are you asking me about? I mean, titties all day back when you were at McGill, I'm sure. What do you think of uh, UL's drinking problem? I don't know what this question even means. I don't either. So, UL, one of his problems is he sucks at beer. 
and doesn't drink enough beer. Uh, but I think he might have a whiskey problem. I think he's hitting the bottle. You know, I think after the podcast, he just goes off and drinks a bunch of whiskey. So, so like late at night, you have like a you know little little low ball glass with whiskey at night. You, yeah, yeah. I'm more of a I'm more liquor, less beer. I see. And is that jet like always in longing of me or? <laughs> yes. Whenever I'm drinking, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> I just don't get it. Like, why do you have this podcast about beer and one of your? Co-host doesn't even into beer. Like I'm so into beer, I'm excited to be on the podcast. Basically, just to talk about beer, not all the sappy shit. And this guy isn't even into the beer. He poured our beer like it was out of a soda stream. <laughs> Listen, it's not like I dislike beer. Uh-huh. It's just I'm kind of I, you know, I could take it or leave it. Uh-huh. I'm happy to drink it on the podcast. It's a very contextual thing for me. So oh was it an God. impulsive thing of you, like to agree to the name? Because we were into the podcast. Obviously, we were we we had a few names. It's in just the works. Like too agreeable. You can't really tell what's going on. Yeah, I, I don't think I thought through it properly. He's the more agreeable one, right? Uh, I did definitely listen to like one episode one. I listened to. Oh my God, like like orders of magnitude. Um, right. But uh, I believe a previous, like the, the, the previous name to this one, Jess, you won't believe it. It was, it was not two psychologists, four beers. It was two psychologists, six beers. We were like, no, no, we're going to get drunk every single time. But, but like, I, I just want you to know that me and, and I'm not alone. We wonder if this is really related to two girls, one cup. Yeah, no, that was, on our, that was on our minds. That oh was my God. On some level on our minds. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe on your mind, dude. I was just thinking about the beer. I don't know that's, what that's you're That's all that I was really thinking of. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, you do you. Yeah. Uh, two girls, one cup. Jesus. Do not Google that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like thinking about you guys and the cup. It's just a lot. That's hilarious. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, uh, do you drink wh- bourbon? Oh, I do drink bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. So you, as a Kentuckian, I feel you are, yes, you know, right. an expert here. Right. Uh, so I'm in the know, minority, uh, academic minority, is being from Kentucky. Right. Right. Um, so you know, uh, do you have any recommendations for bourbon? Go to Kentucky. Go to the bar. When they ask you what bourbon you want, tell them you just want Kentucky gentleman from the rail, because here in Canada, it's like we got to pay money for bourbon. It's in a glass bottle. It's up high on the shelf. Just go down to the bottom, on near the ground. You go to Kentucky, you got a whole wall of bourbon. And you can bend down and pick up Kentucky gentlemen, and you can be happy. That's my suggestion for you. I have never heard of Kentucky what? gentlemen. Not, oh <laughs> not once in my life. Exactly. I think you got to go to Kentucky. But I, plastic bottle, glass bottle, don't you worry. Yeah. Um, does it come in like the plastic bottle with the handle? It can be seen. Yes. Um, Mickey, I think we got to take the show on the road. How much of a drive is that? Five hours, maybe? Wait, where are we? Oh, we get to Kentucky in eight hours. That's Northern go. Kentucky. I just want to be clear. It's not the same as the rest. Yeah. But, but we could be start. drinking Kentucky Gentlemen by what time is it now? Nine? 5 a.m. 5 a.m. <laughs> perfect a. M. time for Kentucky right. Gentlemen with the people on the street <laughs> in my hometown. Covington, Kentucky. Covington, Kentucky. Uh, you've heard it here first. Uh, I uh, I'm feeling really good, and I want to know. Uh, so what we we've talked about this about a year ago. We talked about social media and like we had a kind of like pros and cons and like the way we struggle with it. Um, and you you're on Twitter, and I think you're you're somewhat active, like not super active. Um, what you know? What is your what is your relationship with Twitter? <laughs> it's complicated. 
Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I I do have a little bit of a so I joined Twitter when I was a postdoc. I felt kind of isolated as a postdoc, and I decided to join Twitter to use it for teaching. So I was teaching a 200 person section of intro stats, and I thought, oh, I could use Twitter to like tweet retweet examples of statistics in the news and the media. And I wanted to use those examples in my class as a like relevance intervention to show my students that statistics are everywhere and really important. If you're listening now, know that. Um, But then I noticed that there's like all sorts of people on Twitter talking about psychology and methods, people talking about quantitative methods in psychology, but in adjacent disciplines. I started following all of them and I found a community on there that I didn't have as a postdoc. And I really like Twitter. I actually don't have many negative experiences on there. I use it in a really limited way. So I don't use Twitter personally. So you won't see me. I do shit on the weekends. I hang out with my dog. I drink beer. I don't post about that stuff on Twitter. On Twitter, I like to talk about measurement and issues related to academia and psychology. And I don't, uh, I don't argue with people on there. I like to share stuff, ask questions. And it's, it's been great for me. I've I learned about uh, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science on Twitter. Um, I've been invited, I think, for job interviews because of Twitter. Uh, I've been invited to, I was invited to Estonia to give an open science workshop, you know, I think because the person knew me on Twitter. Uh, I have a few collaborators. I only know from Twitter. So like Iko Fried and I, we've worked in our measurement measurement paper. I met him on Twitter. He literally direct messaged me and was like, you're really interested in measurement. I'm thinking about doing the symposium APS. Would you like to join? All that was from Twitter. So for me, it's really been a positive. I mean, I don't know all the negative impressions I've made of of myself. <laughs> you know, people like chattering about me because of what I didn't say. But I, I only know the positives. And I think it's a community that I needed because my area is really small and the people in my area are spread out. So it's been good for me. That's great. I mean, I think that's true. But as you know, as your friend, uh, I also receive the occasional uh, DM from you, uh, you know, eye rolling uh, something that's going on at that moment. Doesn't doesn't matter what the details are. So there are there is craziness there. I mean, you you see it. Oh, but this is the thing about Twitter. It's like you have to look at it, the craziness. And this is so before I ranted about the Jerry on Twitter, I had like three or four verbal rants just to the wall or to passers-by before I took this Twitter about it. So I have to like it's a big inhibition exercise for me. Twitter, like I almost daily want to get into an argument with someone and I choose not to. That has been You are a master of self control because (laughs) this is the only way I can do that is by literally locking myself out. I I I install devices to lock myself (laughs) out of Twitter so that I cannot be on there and then not have get into these arguments. Because I see them and I can't I'm just fucking so impulsive. Yeah, I mean I set timers and when I'm working on those timers, I don't check Twitter. And then when I'm not on the timers, I check Twitter. So I try to have a boundary with it. You can like go down the rabbit hole. But I've also went down the rabbit hole and had really cool discussions with people about methods. There's a really good methods community on Twitter. So sometimes going down the rabbit hole has been useful. Sometimes it's been a total fucking waste of time. I, I, I have, there are good days and bad days with that. But overall, I think it's been a positive. 
Well, that's cool. That's a, that's a great perspective because I, I feel like I'm always fucking so negative about it. I heard you guys talking about how it was really negative. And I was like walking down the road with my headphones on. I was like, I disagree. But no, it was just me disagreeing. So you are <laughs> assistant director for methods at the Psychological Science Accelerator. What is that? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Uh, the Psychological <laughs> Science Accelerator. Not a planted question. <laughs> uh, so I'm here to talk about the Psychological Science Accelerator. We've been dicking around this whole time, and now we're looking to get biz- down to business. Uh, the Psychological Science Accelerator is a distributed laboratory network of psychology laboratories all around the world, and we conduct massive studies. I'm the Assistant Director for Methods. That means that I think about uh, what methodologies we use to conduct those studies and my committee has oversight of that. That's sort of boring. The point is, <laughs> we do the boring measurement stuff, okay? Um, we also do data management. Uh, when you have a ton of data, there's a lot of stuff to think about. So we, me and Patrick Forsher think both about the data and the methods for the Psychological Science Accelerator. But uh, I just want to say that you all should get involved in Psychological Science Accelerator. We have a new intake form, and we just had a call for studies, and we have study submissions that we're reviewing. And a part of my job at the PSA is to find methodological experts to review studies. And so if you have uh, methodological expertise, but you're not interested in collecting data, you can still be a member of the PSA. We need people to review proposals that have methodological expertise, but we also need methodologists to serve in a key lead authorship role on PSA studies. So the first PSA study ever, uh, 001, which is accepted at Nature Human Behavior, I'm the methodologist on. And, um, you know, we wrote the manuscript, we decided the analysis plan, and we're collecting data from over 11,000 participants all around the world. So that's a sort of opportunity. Like sometimes we need experts and methods that are really unique. And the bigger the network is, the more experts that we can tap. So please sign up. So what should people do if they want to get involved? They should go to psychsci.org. Check me on the URL. I think that's right. Um, And when you sign up, you have a little member profile. And what's really important is you fill in your member profile. So once you make a regular account, there's an option to fill in your profile. And in your profile, you can say what your lab capacity is. So if you want to collect data and be an author on a PSA study, or if you have methodological expertise. So we're looking for both kinds of members. Um, I am, I'm a member. I I think, uh, I would encourage all of you. I think it's an amazing, it's one of the best things that's, that's happened. I think in the last, last five, 10 years in psychology, like this amazing, uh, innovative idea, way of collaborating across the world, um, and answering, uh, you know, any kind of question. And I I think it's a fantastic resource. So thank you so much for like kind of plugging it a bit. Um, and are we co-authors, uh, Jess? I mean, I, oh. I, am I on zero zero one? Are you on the face of study? I am. We're co-authors. Oh my God, a dream! A dream has been realized I right mean, here. No, you know, I'm up at the top. You're down right here in the middle. <laughs> but what about you? Well, are you? <laughs> I'm. I'm not a co-author on this study. But are you in the a member of the? I PS? joined. Yes. Okay. Did, it's do you need my... to go back and complete your full profile now? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I did already. It's on my to-do list actually to find a study to run in the lab this semester. All right. Um, okay, one last question because I think we can't end with that. Um, okay. <laughs> which is one last, last question. Uh, so really, I, I want your honest opinion here um, because you have, you've been pretty honest thus far, but I feel you've been holding back a little. Uh, so just lay, lay it all out for us. Uh-huh. Um, so you live in Canada. 
you you've praised it. Uh, you know what 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 do you like about it? What do you dislike about it? <laughs> um, I like that we're not wearing bras here, <laughs> and that we're smoking joints on the mountain. Okay, so I brought the party joint. We need to shut this sucker down and go smoke it. All right, let's just do that. That's a great way to end it. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 